0: Hello and welcome to Found, where we bring you the stories behind the startups. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, and I'm here with my co-host, Becca Skutak. Hey, Becca, how's it going?
1: You know, hanging in there, trying not to think about how this nice warm weather is actually inappropriate for this time of year. How are you?
0: Good. Doing the exact same thing. I walked the dogs today and I was like, this is right. I deserve this. Right. But, you know, actually, the planet doesn't. So that is relevant to our conversation today, which I'll get to in a minute. But first, just some housekeeping. So as always, please go ahead and write and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. But also we have TechCrunch Early Stage coming up. This is our premier event where you can pick up tips on how to do things like build a business or raise money. And that's coming up on April 20th in Boston. And we'll be there recording a live episode of the podcast as well as just, you know, getting out there. Pressing palms, making friends, right, Becca?
1: Leaving the house.
0: Leaving the house, which is, yeah, I don't do that much of that. (laughs) You can use code FOUND for 40% off both founder and investor passes to the show. So today, though, we're talking to Matt Rogers, who is the co-founder and CEO of Nest and who worked at Apple before that and was the first software engineer on the iPhone project. So he's done a lot. But he wants to do more, and he's back with his new company, Mill. That is a trash bin that dries and shrinks your kitchen scraps, so you can send them back, and then they'll be used for animal feed. So they control the whole process, and consumers get a fancy, nice-looking compost bin in the mix. So without further ado, let's talk to Matt. Hey, Matt, how's it going? It's great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here to talk trash. That joke must come up a lot. I'm sure I'm not the first to have made it. but We
2: are all about the puns.
0: <laughs> okay, good. Excellent. Uh, we're in good company then. I think this is a very pun-heavy podcast on occasion. Uh, but Matt, you've got Mill. It debuted, what now, a couple of weeks ago, let's say, officially? Yeah, just a couple of weeks.
2: That's right. Just a couple of weeks. And so far, so good. You know, like, we've been in stealth for a while. So it, it feels mm-hmm. good to be out and rolling.
0: Yeah, I have to imagine, especially, I mean, you're a big product person, right? There's always the time when you get to share it with the world that must feel super special compared to the time when you're underground, putting things together, doing a bunch of stuff that doesn't work. But before we get into all that, we will get into all that. We should explain to our listeners in case they haven't yet heard of Mill or aren't super familiar on what it is. Do you want to give them a high-level overview of what it is that Mill does? Yes. So Mill is a
2: company we started just a couple of years ago that is building a new system to handle food waste. So Think about the full end-to-end from a new bin that goes in your kitchen that makes food waste not gross and stinky, mm. uh, a means of collecting it and getting it back to farms to feed animals. So, like, the entire loop kind of farm-to-table-to-farm. Wow. In a very kind of Nesty and apple way of making it easy and beautiful and just like a great product experience to have at home.
0: Great. And so just to make sure the listeners also know, depending, they don't know, but the, Matt references those two companies, not just at random, <laughs> but because he has experience at both companies. Matt was the co-founder of Nest and also spent quite a while at Apple designing products. And do, do you want to give us a, a little kind of background history just for listeners that might not be familiar?
2: Sure. So I have like a history of being really lucky and ending up at the right place at the right time.
0: I started I don't like, know if it happened so many times. I, don't, I stopped <laughs> being lucky at some point. You could give yourself <laughs> a
1: little credit. Right. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Maybe. But like when I
2: was you know, just graduating from college, I responded to like ping on like a college job board for the iPod team. And wow. this is at the time when like the iPod was not cool and hip. This is like probably back in 2003. Oh yeah, so okay. like, it, this is like way back in the day. And I was like, cool, yeah, I'll, I'll go talk to those guys. And I ended up doing an internship at Apple on the iPod team and and loved it. And ended up meeting some incredible people. I joined full time just afterwards and again, like right place at right time, ended up being mm-hmm. the first software engineer on the iPhone. So amazing. Helped get that product built. Spent a lot of years in China. But in
0: case in case our listeners aren't familiar, can you give us a brief history of what the iPhone is? <laughs> yeah. It, it, actually the, <laughs> We're all right. <laughs>
2: we could do a whole fun podcast on the history of the iPhone, by the way. like From like old click wheel versions of the iPhone that we didn't end up shipping to what we ended up doing. Uh, yeah, we could have like a whole session on, on iPhone. Oh, I would like day. to do
0: that. We will put a pin in that for a separate discussion yes. for sure. <laughs> yes. So I like started my career
2: at Apple making iPods and iPhones. I left Apple in 2010 to start Nest with my co-founder, Tony Fidel. And... We built that company from zero to, you know, a billion plus in revenue. Mm -hmm. We sold it to Google in 2014. I helped run it for Google for a couple of years, transitioned it over to the Google hardware folks that are running it today and had spent the last couple of years actually working in climate, both as an investor and as a philanthropist Nice. and had spent a lot of years working on the areas of climate that are overlooked. So made some early bets in things like carbon removal and... Mm -hmm helping save emissions in agriculture and industrial emissions, things that are not very sexy, but are really important. And that's kind of what got me to where I am today. Like, that's why we started Mill. I didn't realize how bad waste was, both from the planetary perspective, but also from the human perspective. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're building a new company to end waste. Like, waste shouldn't exist.
0: Wow. I mean, that's a very amb- ambitious goal. I think that you should start with an ambitious goal if you want to make real change, right? I'm curious about, like you mentioned overlooked industries and you, know, you were spending time on the VC side and on the philanthropy side. So what was the decision process there to hone in on this particular problem and then also to go operator side again because you didn't want to just throw money at the problem this time around? Not just, I mean- Oh man. It's good to throw money at the problem. Please do, but yeah. You're getting kind of deep into my psychology. So, I mean, I really enjoyed-
2: being an investor and being a board member, but also it was quite frustrating at times too. Mm. Like you could give an entrepreneur really good advice, doesn't mean they're going to take it. Sure. Uh, and I think kind of my lesson learned, you know, being investor side for several years is I find the work of building very rewarding, mm. and I enjoy doing it. So the opportunity to partner up with my old friend Harry Tannenbaum. Harry worked with us on the early Nest team, and. To start this new company, I was like, I gotta go do it with him. Like right. this is the company you go build. It's a really big problem. We could actually solve it. Like we have the skills to do this and it's a tractable problem.
0: Sure.
2: But yeah, like being an investor is fun, but like you have, you know, you have limited tools available.
0: Yeah. At the end yeah. of the day, the entrepreneurs are gonna make their own decision. Mm-hmm. And they probably just Make the wrong one all the time. <laughs> no, we don't, you don't have to say that. You can Sometimes agree. Sometimes <laughs> you can see the brick
2: wall coming and like that train is rolling right into it. And you can say, you know, I think in six months that brick wall is going to be there and they may still run right into it. That's true. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm curious cuz as you mentioned food waste is such a huge issue. How did you take that focus on that area and sort of narrow it down to like what ended up becoming Mill and ending up focusing on sort of like a consumer product and what was the ideation there?
2: Yes. So, I look at things like very much like a product manager would. Like, okay, if we if we want to end waste, like what is waste? Where does it come from? And what can we do about it? And we were astonished to learn like, first off, like food waste is the biggest category in waste. It's the wow. the biggest chunk of thing in landfills. Like it's about 25% ish of landfill. It's a lot of food that we throw away. Yeah, We throw about 40% of the food we grow and about half of it comes from our homes. So it makes sense. Like, oh, like shit, that's where we should start. We mm-hmm. should start with making it easy to put things in the right bin at home. Like some people try composting it's sometimes very hard, requires a lot of time and space, you get fruit flies, like it's challenging. So can we make an experience at home to kind of get things on the right path? And what we learned is actually we needed to build the whole path too. But yeah, like food waste, really big problem. Like one of my favorite stats is if food waste was a country by emissions, it would be the third largest country. It's like China, largest emitter, then US, then food waste. Oh, it's like wow. eight, to ten, eight to 10% of emissions. It's a really big deal.
0: Yeah, I had no idea. I mean, I think in my intuitively, I guess I would say like, oh, probably the biggest waste are industrial processes or something like you always see you see that counter narrative of like, oh, don't worry about your plastic straws. Like you got to be out there making decisions based on like where you buy and sourcing and policy decisions. Policy decisions are what's really going to save us. And individual action has kind of fallen out of favor as a way to do it because we grew up in the like reduce, reuse, recycle world where that was like drilled into our brains as kids. I'm talking me and Matt primarily. Becca, I don't know oh, if that messaging it, it, <laughs> was like that popular while you totally. were growing up, but that was like- Oh
1: no, it was.
0: Okay. Yeah. 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 It was all we heard. And then you'd go out and be like, okay, I, I'm going to recycle this Coke can and then I'm doing my part and I saved the world. Right. And then later you kind of felt like, no, wait a minute. What about like Exxon or what about- <laughs>
2: when- <laughs> so, so this is a really important topic actually. And I'm definitely a believer that individual action matters and such that it adds up to systems change and drives right. systems change and policy change and that's actually one of our kind of theses behind mill is that we can make a better product a better experience at home and use that as a case study to change how municipal systems work hmm. and actually we have we've got our first partnerships and pilots rolling out of the next couple of weeks on that front like that today like most cities are trying to do the right thing with waste. They have climate pledges. They have zero waste goals. But it's really hard to change people's behavior at home and create new daily rituals. So this is actually one of our theories of change. Like individual action does matter such that it actually adds up and drives systems change.
0: Right, right. Mm -hmm. But it can't be piecemeal. It has to be sweeping and holistic. And to do that, you have to change behavior, which you're the expert at, right? Like you understand how to... Get people to adopt something on a mass scale that is new and novel to them. That's right. And it's funny. you should.
2: I don't feel like an expert, but at the same time, I, I guess if you look over the last 20 years, I've, I've done quite a bit of these products. And right. the way I think about it is it's not just about changing behavior, it's just making things really easy. Mm-hmm. And if you make things really easy, they actually it starts to become the default ritual, the default habit. And I, I hearken back to like the early Nest days when we were designing that first thermostat. And we made that really cute green leaf on the dial. People would always look for the leaf. They would turn the dial. They saw the leaf. They're like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. And it's a subtle cue. But it ended up actually, that ended up driving behavior. And people would change Uh it from 77 to 74. And that would end up saving a lot of energy.
1: Mm -hmm. I can definitely speak for myself that if a consumer product gives me a little treat for like doing the right thing, (laughs) I'm much more likely to adopt
0: it. Yeah, yeah. I'm... Definitely. I had the Nest, I think, pretty close to when it came out. And it definitely changed my behavior. And it's something that stuck with me. But I think that also brings up kind of the other thing you mentioned, which is that the consumer case builds a municipal case, which is what you saw with Nest, right? Like once you started doing that, you had incentivizations through rebate programs and utility providers and stuff like that. Is that kind of the model that you're basing exactly this on? Right.
2: That is- Actually, like, you would think like, oh, like, maybe you should start with utilities and municipalities, but actually, generally those organizations move slower and they want to see data. So actually the path to start with consumers at home is actually the right path. It starts to build the flywheel effects and you build data and word of mouth. And then the larger players like utility companies follow. And I think about like the first years of Nest, primarily a direct-to-consumer business. And what really got scale happening and actually started drive down cost was when utilities realized that oh like we could do this too and there's grid level benefits and you know behavior change at home.
0: Yeah, I think the the question there that I bet a lot of founders probably not with your history and maybe that's a key component but like a lot of founders end up encountering that decision and then going the other way likely on the the advice of like their investors, right? Because you see a B2B opportunity or something like an enterprise opportunity. And you think that's easier and it's also like more repeatable and we've seen it kind of before. And the other one seems a lot harder and more challenging an individual consumer basis and building scale. There seems like just a really sticky mess instead of selling to one buyer who then does a thousand seats or whatever. So how do you get around that? Or how do you advise people to get around that when they're having conversations with investors?
2: Transparently like Harry and I have heard this too. Right. Even on our own journey with mill, like We've had VC say, oh, like you should just do B2B and sell this directly to restaurants. And
0: yeah, like I guess like from like a early... Do you ever say like, but do you know who I am? Remember me? Like that. <laughs> that's the, nothing in my history uh, shows that that's the way that works. <laughs> uh,
2: I like to, I listen to advice, but again, I don't, don't always have to take it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think like my, my advice to founders on this one is especially anyway, as the leader of your company, like you've got to have a strong gut about where you want to go and what your North Star is. Mm. And there are lots of windy roads along the path. And if you know where your North Star is, like, you know where you want to get to. And for us, Mill, we want to get to municipal scale. Yeah. And it makes sense if that's your North Star, like what the path is to get there. Like behavior change at home, new daily rituals is the place to start. Yeah, it really depends on your business. But like, yeah, founders got to have a clear vision of where they're going. And investors are good at pattern recognition because sure. they see so many different pitches and so many different companies but they're only going to spend so many hours on your company so like you know your company best
0: yeah that i think is a like mm-hmm. just based on your has you, have you changed that approach from when you were kind of like pre-year investor and then you had that experience like has that at all changed how you interact with investors or how you pursue that part of the business
2: i'm always respectful and i'll always listen mm-hmm. but actually i, I think And maybe this is a benefit of experience. I'm also not afraid to push back and say, Mm -hmm. hey, no, actually, like, this is our theory of change on the business and our our long-term vision. This is why we're going to do it. And, you know, we're not blind by gut. We also will use data. Right. Yeah. If we're in year two or year three of the company and we're not seeing consumer traction, but we're seeing a lot of pull in B2B or in restaurants or grocery stores. Yeah. Like maybe we'll look at those too, but so far so good on the consumer side.
1: Mm (laughs) And say I am a consumer, well, I guess I am, and say I wanted to start <laughs> say I were.
0: Say I using <laughs> Mill, say,
1: say I've ever bought something in my life, um, how would I go about sort of setting up? I know things are still kind of rolling out because the company is so new, but how would I start using Mill if I wanted to?
2: Yes. So yeah, not only new company, but also like new business model too. And well, I'll get a bit to why in, in a bit, but you go to Mill.com, you sign up for a membership and the kitchen bin is included free in the membership hmm. the send back experience to get the food waste back to farms is included in the membership impact tracking is included and down the road actually maybe rewards are included in the membership too yep. like maybe you get a dividend of eggs from the farm as oh, a thank you
0: that would be great
2: So like really like farm to table a farm in its entirety and it's all available for about a dollar a day and we did this for a number of reasons one less learned from nest people don't like buying hardware and having to subscribe to. Sure. Yes. So, like, mm. yeah, yeah, it's probably from there where like Nest Cam, Peloton's a good example too. Uh-huh. Like, you spend money on this really premium product and you got to pay per month. Well, yeah, that kind of sucks. Yeah, yeah. And people hate that. And the other is like, you think about like where we're going. And today, you pay for waste management per month. It's a service. Sure. Yeah. Down the road, like, if we're preventing waste and we're doing a waste prevention service, we're probably going to fit in a similar model mm-hmm. especially if you think about municipal partnerships down
0: the road yeah that's very mm-hmm. cool i think the lesson about like wanting to because the, the other flip side is like if you get a device and then you pay for a subscription also you need to be able to use it separately from the subscription right or else it's you feel like oh i've been totally screwed like this is a real oh my gosh misuse of my funds or whatever right
2: or like buying a peloton
0: yeah like yeah, you buy yeah.
2: a peloton but don't subscribe like you bought like a, a bike that's sta- a stationary bike for Yeah, a thousand bucks
0: plus. Right. right. I'm thinking a lot, there's a lot lot of exercise equipment that has this model and this problem and this challenge. And I think it's like really difficult. There's a company, I tested out their equipment recently, but it's like this platform thing that's kind of like a tonal, but it's on the ground. It's called the Vitruvian, but it's like, they don't even put their monthly subscription costs anywhere on their website. Like if you go in the FAQ and you're like, how much does it cost? There's a question is how much does it cost to use for a month? And it's like, it's a very reasonable amount after your first year. <laughs> it doesn't say how much it
2: to the point, like people hate that kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Just do it all included. Yeah. And like, yes, I understand. Like there's an ongoing cost to running the service and maybe there's videos and classes. I get that. But like. Just be transparent about it and make it all up front and like say like, oh, like for 50 bucks a month, it's all included. You get the exercise equipment and the classes. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: That's how SoulCycle works, right? No, exactly. And and it doesn't like I think the thing that they're overlooking is that it leaves such a sour taste. Like and it's a kind of indelible memory. Like it's an association with that brand that you're not going to get rid of easily once it's there. Right. Which is like they snuck this by and they're sneaky. And I'm going to remember that always.
1: Yeah. They recently like raised the Peloton membership price. And one of the reasons was that they rolled out classes in Spanish and German. And I was like, but I don't speak Spanish. Them, so <laughs> but why am you I help paying the, the Spanish classes?
0: and German speakers?
1: <laughs> Thrilled yes, for them, but. Becca has one behind here.
0: by the way. The, people can't see this because it's a video <laughs> podcast, but I don't know if that's why it was coming up so much, Matt, but it comes to mind for sure. But yeah. Amazing.
2: Amazing. Uh, yeah, look, like, like, like There are products and experiences we use every day and. Yeah. There are are different ways to market you know, and, to, and to sell these products. And I think we're trying to innovate and make this easier on people. And yeah, like it's harder on the company side. We have to finance that hardware that's going to go sure, your, of course. to your home. But it's the right thing for the customer over the long term. So we're going to do it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like a particularly challenging area in which to do that because your surprise and delight is essentially like, you're making something a bit less unpleasant that is already unpleasant. Or, I mean, you talk about this. Like, are you able to turn this into something that is, like, actually pleasant from a user experience perspective? Because my Greenbin experience right now does suck, right? But it's also, like, it's mildly unpleasant. But it's, like, not anything I really think about that could be, like, oh, this is amazing and I want to engage with this, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. this was our aha moment.
2: So, like, we've been testing the mill experience for about a year now Yeah, in our own homes and in some external field testers. And... Once you have it, you can't live without it. Mm. Like, I don't think you realize how often you take out the trash on a daily basis or on a weekly basis.
0: Well, more, not as much as I should. There are many times I tie up the Greenman, put it on the garbage can, and I'm like, I'm going to take that out next time that I'm going outside because it's real cold right now. And it sits there for a lot longer than it should.
2: <laughs> so like the de of the house is a really, is a fun one. And yeah. in our house, we live in San Francisco, we're like we're three floors up and I didn't have to carry these like gross, icky bags down three flights of stairs. Inevitably, there would be drips on the stairs. And on the way mm-hmm. back up, I'd be like wiping each stair on the way up, trying to clean it. So like, <laughs> I don't have to do that anymore. So that's, that's cool. Yes. The other is like the no smells is a real thing. And oh, yeah. again, like, you don't realize it until they're gone. I'm like, oh man, my kitchen did stink. And like, after mm-hmm. that dinner party, like, holy cow, did we have a lot of scraps? And this experience with meal is like a bottomless pit. Like you put it in, you wake up the next morning and it's empty again and it takes weeks to fill up. So it's just like, it's a better way. And, you know, trash is one of those things that we've taken for granted. Mm -hmm. This is like a lesson I learned from Tony and Steve on the journeys, you know, an Apple and a Nest. Like there are things that we just take for granted, but we don't have to, like there are better ways. And like, I think those are the best products or the ones that we take for granted every day that suck, but could just be so much better.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, they're better from just like, because once people experience them, right, they can never go back to the other one. But it's also better in terms of like the competitive field, right? Because typically it's a a lot more open. Like you're not like, oh, I got to wedge myself in here and differentiate myself in a very, very aggressively competitive field. Like right now you're competing with, uh, I forget the good trash bin but they're like, just, they look really nice. Oh, Simple Human. Oh, Simple, simple human. human, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like- Yeah, like they make stainless steel trash cans. Yeah, yeah, and they look good. They have nice spring action, but there's, they're not much beyond that,
2: right? <laughs> uh, uh, indeed, like when I think about like our competitors, I think our competitor more of as like the landfill. Mm, like right. Mm. the bin is important because it makes the experience at home so much better, but actually like the product at Mill is a new system. Yeah. It's not yeah. just about the bin. And mm-hmm. like, again, this is another like lesson learned from the Nest Journey. Thermostat really important, but actually it was the key to unlocking a new energy system and like mm-hmm. a distributed grid. And I love these kinds of companies where like it's hardware enabled or product enabled, but actually it is systems changed that is was driving the company.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, the iPod was that too, right? And that was a great object lesson in that. Like you changed all the way. I mean, without everybody bought music. Without the iTunes store,
2: like it would just have been an MP3 player. Like, yeah. There are many MP3 players before the iPod. Like I had a Rio, I had like ten songs in your pocket. Oh yeah, man! Like ten songs in your pocket. Also like inf- yeah, inferior product. But really, it was the iTunes Store that gave it life.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I had a bunch of those, and they were really all like cheap, feeling and awful, and unpleasant to use. But yes, it was it was really the access to music, and it was the way that the library was managed and organized and the way that you purchased that that changed everything. I also had Sony Disc players a, a lot. Just before that, if you remember those, those were fantastic. God, I love those. I, th- <laughs> I, 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 think, I think they're going to come back. Like my guess is like in like a retro way. Yeah, they're on their way back. About, yeah, I think guess. so. I got to dig one up. I think my parents still have one. <laughs> there's like a so whole much.
2: underground economy of people who take like old iPod classics and like retrofit them and like- Oh, yeah, put, yeah. Put, Oh, yeah, that's like, there's all, yeah uh retro is coming back i can't believe i'm saying this like it makes me feel old like that an ipod is (laughs) considered retro i know
0: i know thinking about any of this stuff is really for any length of time um but that i do want to ask like thinking back to like the nest days which is even now like that's quite a while ago now right but we sold the company in 2014 wow yeah i know it feels like
2: it feels like ancient history at this point
0: yeah yeah But what is your approach now as a founder? Like, does it resemble how you approached being a founder at that time? Or is it like night and day, like totally different?
2: Honestly, it it is night and day. It's a a totally different world. I mean, one, I think I have a lot more empathy for what the team is going through on a day-to-day basis. And when I started Nest, I was like 25 years old. Right. And I was a thousand percent working all the time. And every minute of my body, every moment in my brain was like, thinking about Nest and how to get from A to B on that. And I didn't realize like, oh, like people have sick parents or have little kids at home and just like they have a life too. And I think as a founder that's now 40 and has two little kids and dealing with cancer and all those things and you have r- real family stuff, you have empathy. And like, mm-hmm. and this actually was, it's called like building mill versus building Nest. Like it really is a marathon, not a sprint. Mm-hmm. And when you're on mile marker four, and you're running out of gas, like, are you really going to make it to the end? Yeah, yeah. And I think about, like, the Nest journey. We sold in 2014. I think I had, like, $20,000 in my bank account, like, wow. my total net worth when we sold. So, like, I was definitely feeling the pressure. And I think if if I had had, like, a different mentality, like, maybe would have kept going.
0: Yeah,
1: right. Mm-hmm. And kind of on the flip side of that, what do you think – you did well in the process of founding Nest, building it up off the ground, and eventually selling it that you hope to, not necessarily repeat exactly here at Mill, but hope to sort of be able to recreate in some way.
2: And this, you know, this is a lesson learned directly from the Apple playbook of relentless pursuit of the best customer experience possible. Mm. Like, everyone mm-hmm. says that. Mm-hmm. Every product person or founder you talk to always says that. But to go to, like, the nth degree to do it is another story. And... Just thinking about like, with our know, early days at Mill, we're like on our 20th iteration of packaging, as mm, an wow. example. And like, just making it easy to open the box. And you know, the bin is about 50 pounds. It's pretty heavy. Like, how can you make it easy to get it out of the box? And just like, we had, I can't even tell you how many iterations, like at least 20 plus mm. to get it right. And it's one of those things that people say that they'll do anything for their customers. It doesn't mm. mean they actually will. One yeah. like, of I, 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 my, my favorite stories about early Nest There were days when we would get phone calls through customer support of people saying, hey, my heater is not working. Nest broke my heater. And we would send an HVAC technician to their house to fix their heater. Wow. Despite (laughs) like not like thermostat has nothing to do with your heater. Yeah, yeah. right. right. Furnace just needed maintenance. But we would go do that. And like, that's something that we learned at Apple. Like Apple would go to extremes to make a better product and to make a great customer experience. And look, people recognize that. And... Yeah, that homeowner that got their furnace fixed is going to tell all their friends how awesome Nest was.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a great point because I think that's the one point where you feel, because you do hear that all the time, but you probably see that fall down most when people are like thinking about locus of control or whatever. Like, what is the domain of my product and what is not the domain of my product? And. They make the mistake, I think it's a mistake, to say, the you know, my product ends where whatever, the physical constraints of my product stop. Like, anything beyond that, or any system that plugs into it, is not my responsibility, the responsibility of those other things. And it's like, no, 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 if you're designing it to interact with these things, it now is responsible for all those things. Especially if it's like the interface for it. Like a person doesn't go down and fiddle with their boiler or whatever, or their heater. Like they use the thermostat, right? So that's the responsibility and that's where it lies. And that must be something that is drilled into you at Apple, I would imagine, right? That's right. You think about whole
2: systems and the system end to end, like iPod, iTunes, iTunes store, and the music and content that gets put on the store. You think about it as that is the system. And that's how we thought about it Nest. It wasn't just about the dial on the wall. It's about the furnace and the air conditioner and the energy grid and all the things that were happening around us. And you know that was our mindset creating mill. It's not just about building a new bin. It's about how does the material leave your house and where does it go and how does it get processed and who are the farmers that are going to be buying it? And, mm-hmm. you know, just like the whole end to end. And that's a different way of looking at things. It's really hard. Like, it's definitely like the double black diamond of startups. Yeah. But I think <laughs> okay. like that, like, that's what you got to do that's how you drive systems change.
0: Yeah. When you're building a team, like how do you either hire for that or how do you inspire that or make sure that people follow that diligently when, when they're, you're training them up.
2: So we definitely over index on passion Mm -hmm. and like, we will interview a lot of candidates for roles and we'll pass on people that are very, let's call it technically sound. Like maybe like they're the best firmware engineer on the planet, but they really don't care about trash. Like, you know, they can go work on anything, right? If There's someone who's less skilled, but you know what? They're going to go to the extremes because they want to end waste and they care about the planet and they're climate driven. Like those are the kind of folks that we bring in. Mm -hmm. And it was a very similar thing to kind of the early days at Nest. But obviously as Nest grew, it became more smart homey than just about thermostat and energy. But I think like mission orientation is the most important thing when building a startup because you could learn new skills, but like it's hard to teach passion.
0: Yeah. I would say impossible. Actually, I try every day. No one learns. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm not looking at you back. You're very passionate. It's other people who shall remain nameless.
1: <laughs> I am curious, though, so, taking a yeah. step back for a second, because you did mention... Looking at the whole system and obviously in something like this, as you mentioned, that includes farms, sort of these pickup drop off, like a lot of moving parts that require a lot of other people and businesses, too. And I'm sort of curious, like, how does this affect like when the product rolls out? Do you think it makes sense to start in like a specific area? Can this go like national right away? Like, how do you sort of set up the rollout for something that does require that many players at once?
2: Actually, transparently, like these are all things that we looked at through the journey getting to this point. Mm-hmm. like in the kind of iterations of the business getting to this point, like we thought like, oh, like, is this a business that kind of launches locally, city by city mm-hmm. because of that kind of deep local logistics component? And we got both kind of lucky, but also like, and again, like able to make some, especially during the pandemic, you can make calls and people will answer. <laughs> we had some conversations with the postal service. Like, hey, like, could we partner with you guys and could you pick this stuff up? And not only did they say yes, but like, this would be a great business for us. We'd love to get involved. We have climate goals. Hmm. Good part. Yeah. Great partnership. Good place to start. Post office goes everywhere every day anyway. Yeah. So like Mm -hmm. postal carriers come into your house every single day, rain or shine anyway. Now, could those trucks go back with some packages on trips? They already were on. So both from a business perspective and that, like we're not adding a lot of cost. And then from environmental perspective, we're not adding any other miles. So, it, like, yeah. it was oh, a, yeah. it was a really good win win win. That's what enables Mill to be national. Without the Postal Service, we probably couldn't be a national company.
0: Wow. Do you want to tell them that publicly? Because then I feel like the contract value might go up. But we should we should edit that part out. No. Uh, 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 <laughs> I mean, what's cool is like, so like the Postal Service also has
2: like a public good mandate too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. like, I think we're we're hopefully going to also play up the public good side
0: nice yeah that reminds me of in japan like the japan post does like elder care like they do check in on uh seniors who you know might not have other support systems or you know readily available family members but yeah it makes sense like yeah
2: your postal carriers come in your house every single day sometimes multiple times a day yeah what are the other kind of things they could do when they're there right exactly and in this case like could they pick my box of dried food, yeah. they sure can.
0: It's a key part of national infrastructure that you know people should leverage and use as much as possible. And instead of privatizing, I forget where you all are at with that. I'm Canadian, Matt, oh, yeah. so is, have you privatized your postal service yet? Or no, it's no, nope, okay. it's still public good. And uh, it's
1: putting along, yeah, <laughs> <in> public money. <laughs> well, come
0: on, good public services are good. You just need more taxes to go into them. <laughs> this is the part of the podcast where I. Go on the socialist tear. <laughs> and then we get a lot of letters afterwards. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I had a related question, which is like, you know, the other, another an analogy to Japan, but I used to, I lived there briefly, but I would put out my garbage and then the people would come around and they would just lecture me about all the things that I had done wrong with sorting my garbage, right? So that is an immense behavior change to ask and... Especially with organic waste, because it's like a little bit, at least in the traditional system, like a little something wrong. Like you put in a contaminated receptacle or whatever, and it screws up the whole thing. So how do you deal with that? And making sure customers are like your allies in that regard.
2: Yeah. So this is an area where the US lags basically everywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Japan, like South Korea, China, Taiwan, Singapore. Like they all do a better job than we do. Yeah. Same with the Europeans. Europeans are also really good at like, oh, like. This goes in a different bin because it gets recycled. It has value. Americans still haven't figured this part out yet because (laughs) it's hard because it's a major inconvenience and Americans don't like inconvenience. So again, like make it easy. Maybe we'll do it. But yeah, like we've designed the mill system to also to nudge you the right way. Like, Hey, like we saw you put a plastic bottle in the bin. We filtered it out, but Hey, like next time don't put plastic in the bin. Mm. at our facilities. We sort and process the materials that we get and, make sure it's safe to feed chickens.
0: Oh, cool. Okay. So, I mean, that's great because there's a feedback system and there is some accountability, but like gentle. Because what happens here is I sort stuff into green bin, blue bin, just trash bin. I don't know what happens to it after that. I don't know if I did it right or wrong. I have no idea,
2: right? Yeah, I just bought like a truckload of compost for our garden and it was full of little plastic bits. And my daughter, being the resourceful girl she is, Picked out a bunch of the little plastic bits and like made a collage, like all all the treasures she found in the garden, uh, which is both like heartwarming, but also brutally sad.
0: Yes. Yeah. So like
2: we're not going to have this problem because, again, this is a cool thing about food. When food gets dry, it gets really small. So when we send our food grounds back to Mill, we sort it and sift it. We are able to very easily extract the good stuff and like the plastic bits where we filter out.
1: And something I was curious about because I know it mentioned, um, you guys mentioned that it doesn't smell, which is great, but mm-hmm. it grinds or sort of works with the food waste overnight. Is it loud? It's not. So okay.
2: it's quieter than a dishwasher, but a little bit louder than a refrigerator. So if you kind of can put that in your mind. Yeah, and for like yeah. the technical audience, it's like 40 ish DBM. It's like not too bad. Yeah. No, it's it like, and it runs at night. So it also like, doesn't bother you.
0: In the kitchen at night, 40 decibels, you're not gonna hear that. Yeah, it's ready. quieter than your dishwasher. So like yeah. especially if you're running
2: your dishwasher at night, like you're not gonna hear it over your dishwasher.
1: Yeah. Mm. Bold of you to assume I have a dishwasher. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you should get one. I'm asking because small apartment environment. Environment. It's like, a think, game changer. <laughs> like sliced bread, dishwasher, <laughs> mill. Like <laughs>
1: <laughs> my landlord loves when I email them these kind of <laughs> <laughs> statements.
0: Email your landlord that exact list and then like, see what you get. <laughs> Uh, that's actually another go-to market
2: of ours. Yeah, like, I was
0: going to ask about that. Yeah, can we work with landlords? Like, yeah. especially like in
2: like larger apartment buildings, like trash is pretty stinky, and like everyone knows about those gross trash chutes and trash rooms at the end of the hallway. And like, could we get rid of those?
0: Yeah, like yeah, yeah like mm-hmm. there's a path there too. Yeah, oh, that would be amazing. So I I i alluded to this at the top, but I'm going to ask it to end it here. But like, what is it like for you building this in stealth and then getting to the actual go-to-market moment? How do those phases? is it everything? Is all the energy and excitement in that go to market? Is it all leading up to that? Do you have kind of consistent energy throughout or how do you manage that?
2: I am always pretty high energy. I think it's, maybe it's one of my good traits makes me a good (laughs) good entrepreneur, but like, uh, I'm always pretty high energy. I'm always pretty optimistic. So like I've been going at this almost three years now at like a very steady 95%, like Mm. full throttle, but really like Launch, like, you know, leaving stealth, launching the company, starting to be out in the world for us is really rewarding because like, we knew this is going to be cool, sure. that people are going to like it. That's going to make it make a big difference, that there's a positive impact, but it's really good now to hear it from others. Like we're not only drinking our own Kool-Aid. Yeah. That's one of the things I always caution other entrepreneurs. Like, are you only drinking your own Kool-Aid or like are you getting some external validation and data too?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wish there was an easy way to extend that metaphor. Are you drinking other people's Kool Aid? Is that, does that work? Yeah. Or the are you drinking like
1: Kool Aid? That sounds Sunny gross. Sunny D, though.
0: in addition to Kool Aid? Is there yeah. other brands in there? I don't know. <laughs> Is, isn't
2: that why Elon Musk bought Twitter? Like, yeah, like the, the whole reason why i bought twitter is so like so like he could like drink other people's kool-aid or like have people drink his kool-aid I that, was, that was the whole point
0: right i think i think you're right i think that is exactly why I did
2: it. like if you're worth a hundred billion dollars like what's 30 billion dollars between friends <laughs> no it's, i it's, mean yeah
0: yeah for some kool-aid worth it yeah. totally J- i just thought of this but when do you have visions on like Crossing the whole garbage stack, like, do you look at the all of them as opportunities as opposed to just the uh, organics or what?
2: It is the right question. Yeah, we're starting with food. Mm-hmm. Food is you know, a quarter of landfills, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff we throw away that we shouldn't. That's really hard to deal with. Yeah, and yeah, like I think over time, like that's where this company could go. Like, can we end waste?
0: Yeah, I suppose it, it must be a debate because you've got the other fifty percent of food waste, which is probably a commercial and. Enterprise or whatever, right? So, but the, right. you look at that way, and then you look the other way, and you're like, which is going to work better? Like, do we have the in with the consumers. Do we expand that way, or do we go up the stack? Oh my
2: gosh! You're like, you're, you're not only you're in my mind, but like in my mind for like many years. Like, there was a, <laughs> a time at Nest where Tony and I were having the same discussion. Like, mm-hmm. we had just launched our second version of the Nest thermostat. We're like, oh, like, do we do something new, new category? Do we do more in energy? Do we do something grid side? And that's what we end up doing the smoke alarm next, right? And that kind of led us on this path of being a smart home company sure. rather than a home energy company. And I think about like that fork in the road and like, do we make the right call on that fork of the road? Yeah. Like similar conversations with the mill team now, like which forks in the road do we take at which time? And man, it's really hard to know which is the right path. Yeah, It really is.
0: Yeah. I guess, I mean, all you can do is wait for some signals and then make a, make a choice, right? It's like you, that's informed, right. but yeah.
2: That's right. And, but there's no back button. That's the other thing. Right. No back button in startup
0: land no there certainly isn't but i mean you know what i think you'll get to all of it eventually matt i have faith in you you're obviously high energy very optimistic person you'll get there you'll get there
2: (laughs) thank you yeah we're in it for the long term like yeah this is not a company we plan to sell
0: to google in three or four years
2: that's just not the plan like the plan is to solve a systems problem yeah it's gonna take us a long time to do that
0: cool well i hope you solve it for the sake of all of us and thanks again for joining us matt it's been great having you of course my pleasure All right, Becca, that was our conversation with storied investor and entrepreneur Matt Rogers. He's done so much. I think one of the most interesting things he talked about was kind of how frustrating it was for him to be an investor and not be able to get in there and just do things and make things happen. I bet that's probably a common problem for operators turned investors.
1: Yeah. And something we don't hear about often, but I'm sure you're right. And I think for him specifically, coming from that team on Apple, like we talked about on the podcast, Apple's so particular about user experience. Well, it seems particular about everything. Mm -hmm. Coming from that to being a founder and then an investor, I'm sure it's like even more frustrating for him based on like both those experiences.
0: Yeah, that must be tough. I mean, I think it is It's a thing that you hear about from anybody who spent a significant amount of time at Apple is like that obsession with detail and with every element of the process and that approach to systems thinking, which is like very comprehensive and holistic. But it must be so hard to see startups doing that. But on the flip side, like it must be so hard for founders to be like, you want me to think about all that, but also we employ three people or whatever. (laughs) We also don't have billions of dollars backing us up
1: (laughs) No, that dynamic I think is so interesting because it's like, even if advice is good, like you said, you can't always even take it. Yeah. No. So like that constant struggle of even if you agree with what's being said to you or you think it's helpful, but also just the logistics of is it even possible to do. Yeah,
0: yeah. But I do think it seemed like it was a combination of, yes, he wants to be on the operator side. He wants to be getting stuff going. And then he also he saw this opportunity and was like, I have the skill set To make a difference here, right? Because I think the key ingredient with this particular thing and the thing we've seen many, many other efforts, public and private, kind of fail at is changing human behavior, which is, like, the most challenging thing in the world to do. But all of Matt's past products have demonstrated a, like, really remarkable ability to do that.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And I definitely think it's interesting here with this being one of those aspects of climate change where the consumer behavior and consumer aspect of it actually can make more of a difference than, say, corporations cutting carbon emissions and sort of the like, which is always that argument against some of those consumer yeah. changes. But it definitely, I think it's interesting because while I agree it would be a slight consumer behavior change, I'm curious if he'll get any pushback from the people who, are, who grow up, like we talked about, being told to recycle and then finding out years later, like a lot of that didn't actually help or didn't actually do anything. And right. so I am curious if the company will face any sort of pushback in any way like that. Yeah, I, don't know I if you thought too. about
0: that. No, I did. I did think about that because I think there's a. There's like a disillusionment or like a whiplash effect that makes it harder to then climb out of that trough. Like, it's not like just that you have to institute this positive change. It's like you have to overcome this impression that past attempts at positive change were actually for not, right? So it's like fool me once, fool me twice type thing that you have to get over. And I definitely feel that myself personally. Like I do, I think the straws is the best example. Like I don't care about paper straws. I don't care about it. This is a controversial hot take on the found outro, but like... I want my plastic straws. They're really good. They're really good at what they do. Other types of straws are not nearly as good at what they're supposed to do. The metal ones are dangerous. The paper ones dangerous. are dangerous. Yeah, because you could if you fall on it, I don't know. You get to go it'll go right through your soft palate. Who knows what's going on? All right, happen. this is
1: a hot take. <laughs> but, <laughs>
0: <laughs> listen, you never know when you're just drinking and you could fall forward. It can happen.
1: Gotta be careful.
0: Anyways, but the, the, like, I always felt like, why are you asking me to do this when I am not contributing that much to the ocean waste or whatever? It's mostly fishing nets and stuff. But the, I think the good point here that he made that was eye opening was that like individual consumers combined represent 50% of the waste in that huge, huge category, which itself is, I think he said, the third largest when it comes to waste categories overall, right? Mm hmm. Yeah, that was like, oh, wow, you really can make a difference here. And I think he'll be able to galvanize some kind of action on the back of that. But I think the user experience is going to be what takes it the rest of the way. Because when I started thinking about it after the podcast, like if you told me, like, oh, someone's going to come and take your green bin contents on a daily or whatever basis, and it's the post office person and they're coming anyway, and like, that sounds amazing to me. It sounds so convenient. About a part of my life that I find rather unpleasant and like, you know, like a chore that I do not look forward to doing. So I think that is the real selling point.
1: Mm -hmm. I also think it's interesting, too, because unlike with recycling, some of those other consumer based green choices is that you see the end goal here. Like you can kind of track where things are going like, oh, this is being used to feed animals. Like that's going to get some people just off the bat. Whereas opposed to like recycling, it's like you're putting it in a same bag as you're putting your trash. It gets thrown in a truck that looks exactly the same. And then, you know, it gets like burned somewhere and it's actually bad. Like this could be a much more compelling sell, easy getting picked up from your house and sort of knowing the actual direct positive impact on the other side.
0: Yeah. And then if it does eventually evolve into what he kind of alluded to, where that you get rewards through some kind of a farm share or something... Mm -hmm. like even if that becomes an add-on service or they partner with that but then you get a discounted membership I can see that being really successful too because I think you know that's also something that consumers are already saying they want and are interested in is these kinds of farm share grocery delivery participation programs right so definitely loop that in make it like a cost benefit like yeah that seems amazing so I have high hopes for it I will say honestly I was skeptical going into it Matt did a very good job of convincing me that the idea had uh, liked. So I hope they do become a success long term. Mm-hmm. Found is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington and TechCrunch Plus reporter Becca Skutak. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.